I will be honest, literally the first time that I put the album on, I was like 30 seconds in and I was like, are they speaking Welsh? Is this what Welsh <laughs> sounds like? <laughs> Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong friends, musicians, and complainers break down some of history's most influential albums, randomly selected from Robert Dimery's 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. Now, we're going to tell the backstory of this record. We're going to play a lot of clips to help you get familiar with the music. And at the end of this podcast, we're going to vote on whether or not you really needed to hear this album before you died. I have to warn you, dear audience, that although we have the utmost respect for anyone who puts pen to paper or song to tape, we also enjoy poking fun and nitpicking, even the music we we love the most. So heads up, we're going to be having a laugh at this album's expense along the way, I'm, I'm sure. And you know because you clicked, today we're going to be diving into the Manic Street Preacher's album entitled The Holy Bible. So to get you situated in our headspace and let you know what we've been listening to this week, let's play a clip of the very first single off this record. It's called Faster. Okay, now that you have an idea of what this record sounds like, we are going to dive in and introduce our cast of characters for the evening via a tweet-length review. And so this is an encapsulated review of the record. Tell us how your week went. We're going to throw it first to Tom. Thank you, Rob. And apparently I missed the memo where we decided to change the format of the show and instead focus on the list of Robert Dimery's 1001 pretty okay albums he heard once in the 90s. But I'm going to try to struggle through. Ouch. Okay, we're going <laughs> to... Shots fired already. <laughs> we're going to move on next to, to Marty. I'm going to really uh, embody the complainer part of this podcast this week. Here's my tweet-length review. The Holy Bible by the Manic Street Preachers combines the blandest elements of popular 90s indie rock music with way too much world leader name dropping. (laughs) Okay, okay. This might be a contentious one. We're going to see how this goes. (laughs) We do have a very special guest, and we're going to give him a proper introduction after this tweet. But first, Rob, I would love to hear your tweet length review. All right, here we go. Wordy, dense, alternative hard rock, check. Batshit crazy lyrics featuring politics, misanthropy, and human suffering, check. Band member lyricist suffering from mental illness who mysteriously disappears after the album is released. It's like a really dark Eddie and the Cruisers. (laughs) Nice. And just to confuse you listeners further, this is also Rob. We have two Robs on the call tonight. My tweet-length review of the Holy Bible is... Gutter punk energy meets Guns N' Roses glam 
with a strong dose of earnest political idealism and working class resentment. I laughed, I cried, I hurled. What more can you ask for? Oh, I think a lot personally, but we'll get into it. I'm excited to get into the backstory. Did a lot of research this week. Really wanted to try to get my head around what was going on with this band and this record. But before we dive into our general impressions and then the backstory of the record and then eventually some of the songs, I want to introduce our very special guest. It's Rob from the That Record Got Me High podcast. Thank you so much for coming. Tell us a little about the show that you do over at That Record Got Me High and why people should go over and listen to it. I'm going on my sixth year doing it. Started in 2018 every week. I have basically have a guest on. They bring a record that got them high and we talk about it. It's kind of, it's very similar to you guys in that it's just the vibe of it is people who just love music, talking about it, tearing it down track by track. So very similar. Uh, we do also, my thing is we don't go by a set thing. The guest picks a record, whatever they pick, do. I do within limits. There are same. I have said no for people for certain <laughs> things. And usually it's something more off the beaten. We do a lot of off the beaten path, you know, maybe not, uh, not so much popular, really popular music, but just about anything's fair game. Yeah, it's a great show. I was listening to the metal episode today as I was reading some of our listener mail demanding that we take on Pink Floyd's metal, ironically. No, oh, okay, but, nice. Uh, but no, it's it's a fun show. Definitely treading in very similar waters to us, just kind of talking love of music, breaking down, analyzing some of the songs. So I definitely recommend listeners go check it out. Well, we're excited to hear your contribution. I know you're also a guitar player with tons of experience in the music world from years past. And so I'm excited to hear your your thoughts on this record as we get in. So perhaps that's just a segue for us to talk a little more deeply, to expand a little bit on our general impressions here. And maybe I'll kick it back to you first, Rob, to get hopefully a ray of positivity into this otherwise dark story. Yeah, I mean, I could tell already this could be a little uh, contentious because I'm curious to hear. I mean, I, I think a lot of what you guys were alluding to about the record is fair. It's it's all very fair. But I'm just wondering, I'll be interested to hear how much you really guys know about the backstory and actually the story of this record. And for me, this is one of those things where, you know, Joy Division, when you listen to Joy Division after you know, like... Uh, closer their second album and you know that ian curtis uh, took his own life on the eve of them coming to the u.s on their tour you can't separate that from the music anymore you know that information and it kind of colors everything and for me that's what happened to me with this record too i mean i just kind of stumbled on it and i thought it was interesting but then when i did a dive into it and realized how it was created and the whole story about it it just i became kind of obsessed with it for a while but i will admit that some of that is because of the things that happen outside of the actual music and uh, that's on the actual record i would love to jump in here because i think they're hard to separate but i also don't think just because this band is has tragedy in its story and we're going to get into it it's certainly not an automatic pass and i'll tell you right now i, I like the record i think it's a fun rock record I think fun. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a rocker. I think it's an interesting mix of these kind of sensational fun rock songs with this really dark lyrical thing going on and I like the fact that the band seemingly created those two elements completely separately from each other. I think that kind of helps it along. Oh, that is absolutely what I could not get past at all. Not the tone tonal difference. I am totally fine with dark lyrics and pop music. That's totally fine by me. 
My biggest issue was that the lyrics and the melodies were completely separately conceived. And so he's trying to cram these lyrics into the melody that was written seemingly with no concept of what the words were going to be. And it leads to this very rambling and honestly made the lyrics unintelligible. I had to go and listen to the song while looking at the lyrics to be able to figure out what he was saying 90% of the time. And generally, I'm pretty good at being able to figure out what a person is saying. I'm not even thrown off by like Radiohead or something like that. Tom York, also kind of unintelligible, but I can pick those lyrics out pretty well. But it, it led to this disjointed feeling Again, not in tonality, in like conception. And the fact that they never rhyme also really didn't help with the way that the things kind of <laughs> washed against each other. Can't disagree, but that aspect doesn't bother me. But Marty, you go Yeah, ahead. I was going to say, I, I did the same thing. I was watching the lyrics while listening to the music, and I was like, I felt like the lyrics might be wrong. Because, you know, Spotify has that, that feature. I was <laughs> yeah. like, this, this, doesn't yeah. sound, this doesn't sound like the words he's saying in a lot of the, the, the parts. And something about this record just bothered me kind of like a a dull toothache it it seems just like a bunch of like okay players and okay ideas coming together to make an okay record kind of like what tom said but i do i do appreciate a band based on their story so i'm interested to learn more i mean i had a similar experience with like the band t-rex where i was kind of lukewarm on their music until i found out how much of a weirdo mark bolin was for instance so it's going to be good to hear the the story of the band maybe i'll come out with more positive things to say about the band I do have to say that musically, I actually kind of liked the album musically, and I thought Sean Moore is a pretty good drummer, and he does interesting things, not necessarily super technically proficient things, but there's a lot of interesting rhythmic elements to it, and I thought that, generally speaking, that the musicianship was good, and if it had been given a different vocal treatment because I also kind of don't like James Bradfield's vocal delivery about 40% of the time. There's sometimes where he sounds great. And then there's this sort of punk sneering delivery without the intensity behind it that I think would make it more palatable. Overall, I don't hate the album. And I think he wire. He's a good bass player. He's utilitarian, but he's doing what needs to be done to move these songs along. I just really wish that they had completely redone the melody and taken 40% of the words out, and it would have made it would have made it much more impactful for me. Okay, I think that's a reasonable criticism of the problems with this, and I certainly don't think this is a perfect album, but I have to say I mostly disagree, and I guess I'll be defending this album for most of the time. Good. Uh, thank God, because I was afraid I'd be the only one. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say that when I first listened to this, which was only a week ago-ish, I knew there was more here. I could sense that it was a rock record, that it's of its time, you know, some of the criticisms you're mentioning, but I also knew right away that people are really, really devoted to this band on a deep level. And I think there's a not insignificant number of people who would call this their favorite record. And so I really wanted to, I spent extra time this week listening, more than I normally do, to try to understand that. And so I, I want to try to bring that to the table. I'm not a lifelong Manic Street Preachers fan. In fact, I had never heard of them before they came up on the Albinator. But I think the musicianship is great. I think the musicality of the band is extremely strong, although it's definitely of its time. They never, they don't really rest on their laurels and just strum along. It's rhythmically interesting consistently. I think the guitar player's great. I think the bass player's good. I like the singer. So, but I want to go back to something about the story. You know, Marty said he's interested in the story. 
Rob, our guest, mentioned the story is sort of inseparable. And I think a lot of the ethos of this show, at least for me, is understanding that context. It's not just about the music in a vacuum. It's about the time it came out. It's about what was going on with the artist. So let's absolutely dive into some of that background because I have a lot to tell you. And again, just because they're a tragic story does not mean they're unimpunable at all. The Manic Street Preacher's story is a story about a band from a far-flung corner of the country, a band both anachronistic and futuristic at the same time. It's about a working-class, politically-minded alternative to the rise of Britpop good times and lad culture. It is also a story about mental illness and self-harm and eating disorders, so fair warning for any listeners who may be rather freaked out by that. This is definitely going to get a bit dark. And of course, if you're struggling with any of these problems, know that asking for help is a sign of strength. I hope everyone knows that. But okay, all that said, we're going to do our best to keep it as light and airy as possible, given some of this subject matter, because I assume that's why you tuned in, is for the hilarity. (laughs) So the Manic Street Preachers, or the Manics, as they're known, are from a small part of South Wales called the Valley, specifically a town called Blackwood. It's a little outside of Cardiff. And we're talking post-industrial town in complete decay. Factories closed, mines been shut down, there's no money coming in, community struggling kind of thing. And I don't know if we have touched upon it. I don't know why we would touch upon the miners' strike of uh, 84, 85. But it's arguably one of the most important political <laughs> moments in recent UK history. And yeah. it, it definitely has a place in this story. But it was basically like the last gasp of the mining unions to stand up to increased offshoring and mechanization and mine closures as the resources of England and and the UK in general became more and more expensive to produce. And long story short is Margaret Thatcher won that battle and a lot of these mining towns went into ruin shortly thereafter. And so that's kind of like the setting for this, the beginning of this band where these guys grew up. We're talking about the 80s in Wales. So first, let's just talk about the band members themselves. We've already alluded to some of these Characters. There's four people in this band. One guy is called James Dean Bradfield. He's the lead vocalist and the lead guitar player. There's a guy called Richie Edwards, also sometimes credited as Richie James. I'll probably just shorten his name down to Richie consistently. He's a rhythm guitar player. I'm going to use that term very loosely because he actually does not play a note of music on this entire record, but he wrote, let's say, something like 75% of the lyrics and is considered was considered the de facto leader of the band. He also helped with things like the design and the production for the band. There's a guy called Sean Moore, who's the drummer, and a guy called Nicky Wire, who plays bass guitar. That is a stage name because he's really tall and skinny. So let's talk about where these guys came from, right? James Bradfield and Sean Moore, the drummer, are actually cousins. So not only are they from this small town, but they actually live together from the age of 10 because of a divorce in one of their families. And the rest of the gang all knew each other from primary school on. They originally formed a band in 1986 when they're all about 17, 18. This would be in high school in Blackwood in Wales together. And the original name of the band was called Betty Blue. This was a four piece with a fourth guy who was not Richie. It was a guy called Miles Woodard, whose stage name was Flicker. He, he actually was originally playing bass in this original incarnation of the band, but within a relatively short amount of time, by 1988, this guy Flicker leaves the band because he doesn't like how far away from hardcore punk music they're, they're going. So, like all great musical stories, Nicky Wire decides 
Yeah, now that now they are need a bass player, and Nicky Wire goes, "Well, I'll just switch from guitar to bass." So yeah, they're basically the same thing, right? Basically yeah. the same yeah, thing. You don't so. need any specialized skill to play the bass. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he switches over, and there are three priests for a while. And the way their songwriting works, even back then, is that this guy Nicky writes the lyrics, and then James and Sean, that's the guitar player and the drummer, finish the songs from there. So it's actually interesting. I didn't really get the sense that they wrote simultaneously. I more got the sense that they wrote in an assembly line, which I which I agree doesn't make sense when you listen to the recording where it does seem like the melodies are trying to fit in the words, but I think that for this album particularly, especially with what Richie Edwards was going through, I'm getting I get the sense that he was a lot more removed, right, from the rest of the band members and was maybe kind of doing this stuff like in his room alone and delivering them you know so yeah yeah i'm just saying i got this i never heard that they literally wrote them in parallel and smashed them together meaning words written in one place and melody and music written in another place and then kind of pushed together instead it seemed like it was always being described as lyrics first hand off the notebook and then we'll go ahead and write the song which but i agree if you listen to what we get on the record it doesn't sound like that so at this time, this guy Richie is a friend and a roadie for these guys. He's been their buddy since elementary school. He drives them around between shows. He helps them with some of their early design work, some of their press releases. He has, by his own admission, zero musical talent, but they opt to make him a full-time member anyway as a rhythm guitarist, even though he literally would fake play a wow. guitar that was not turned on on stage, <laughs> at least in the early days. Yeah, there's a video of them playing the Reading Festival, and he's like just mime. You can tell he's just miming his guitar up there at Reading, and he's not even playing. I mean, he's playing, but he's obviously his amp's not plugged in. It's a little bit of a weird situation, but they obviously felt he had such he had other aspects to contribute. His big contribution, like we said, is writing. Right, so he starts getting in there and writing lyrics, collaborating a bit with this other guy, Nikki, who was also writing lyrics, helping them get more and more political is the reason I gave you the background of their kind of working. They have this working class chip on their shoulder. They're from a town where there's very few jobs, very little opportunity. People are poor and they're mad about it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, are they really? Are they upset? <laughs> I could not tell from these lyrics. This guy, Richie, he's a little bit of a, a Sid Barrett type in all the good and bad ways, I think. But he's kind of this personality who's hard to take your eyes off of. He's like they talk about when they get on stage with him, just somehow, some way, he just becomes the focal point. He's the best looking guy. He's the coolest dressed guy. He just is the peop one that people want to stare at for whatever reason, right? Rob, we fucked up by getting good at our instruments. We should have just focused on our outfits. That <laughs> would have helped. Found that guy. <laughs> yeah. Hit yeah, the gym true. more, go to the fucking thrift store, get some cool outfits. We could have made it happen, man. I don't love this part of the story, but I have to say that if if you choose to interpret it as they were such great friends, they wanted to help this guy along, I think that part resonates with us a little bit, right? Like, I'd rather be in a band with my friends than some stranger who happens to be really great at their instrument, and we've all, well, at least two of us have been through that exact yes. experience. We had John on bass. That's why I played the drums oh, for a period yeah, of time. Right. <laughs> Come around to 1990, they sign, they get signed by a record label called Damaged Goods to a one EP deal. The EP is called New Art Riot, and it's done in part because of the braggadocious press kit written by Richie. Like, he would just write bragging, arrogant things about how great a band they were, the best band in the world. 
I'm sure partially being tongue in cheek and just send it out to people. Like he was good at promoting this band, right? Well, I'm beginning to understand more why you really like this band because that's exactly what you <laughs> did back when we were in the shop. Like the greatest band ever. Yes. We actually can barely play our instruments, but you know, listen, fake it till you make it is a good strategy, dear audience, right? So on the strength of that EP, they get signed to a slightly bigger indie called Heavenly Records. This one is based in London. They record some singles and they're like, they're starting to get some heat, right? But before that even comes around, they're starting to get a rep in the UK music press as being these very political, very intense post-punk guys. And here I'm going to reference one of our favorite bands that we get written to about the most, which is Gang of Four. They definitely love Gang of Four. They're kind of in that mold of a band, let's say. Listen, Gang of Four appears a ton in my notes for this album, <laughs> specifically in a non-complimentary way to this album, because as much as I shit on Gang of Four when we did it, I have come to really like that album and listen to it kind of frequently. And they have a lot to say as well, but they say it in a way that you can understand, and it gives it so much more weight when there is a meter to what you're saying. I don't care about the melody. The melodically delivered in a flat way like they do on Gang of Four is fine as long as it sticks to some kind of meter and you can sort of understand what's going on. Again, I'm not trying to get back into talking shit on this album, but that muddled the message for me a lot on this. Yeah, I, I hear you. And I have to say, I mostly listened to this album this week without thinking too hard about the lyrics. And I know we talk a lot on this podcast. We go back and forth. Different people say, oh, I'm a lyrics guy. I'm not a lyrics guy, such and such. But the reality is, I think you can and should switch your mindset at different times to different things, depending on the, on what's going on in the music and what the music is sort of telling you to focus on. So, so I do still think it's a fair criticism, Tom. I'm just saying that I think the music can be enjoyed without diving too deep into the lyrics as well. But okay, I wanted to mention that as they are this very intense, kind of overly serious, maybe, political band, there is this one journalist from NME called Steve Lamarck, who isn't buying it. He's not buying the hype. He's been sort of combative <laughs> with them in his articles. He's throwing them shade while he's reviewing other bands, which feels like bad form, but also it's like something we would do. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he could come on our show. And so there's this story. He goes to a show one night around this time and he talks to Richie, who, like I said, he's the de facto leader after the show. And basically he's being adversarial and he's questioning about the band's commitment to the political causes that they write songs about, that they espouse and questioning their commitment to those, those causes. And during this backstage interview, Richie pulls out a razor blade and starts cutting into his own forearm the words for real, the number four, and the word real. Apparently, while continuing to talk to this guy that he doesn't really like that much, and the journalist doesn't really know what to do, so he just keeps asking questions and conducting this interview as normal. And this brings us to a dark-as-hell version of our favorite segment here, By the Numbers. The first number I want to tell you about is 17. That's the number of number of stitches yeah. <laughs> Richie needed after this grotesque affair. And look, at the time Richie had been getting into self-harm, bandmates said he had been stubbing cigarettes out on his arms and stuff like that. And, and sadly, I don't think his bandmates or anyone around him really understood the implications of this behavior, or at least not fully. The cutting into his arm after that show was kind of seen as this like brazen rock and roll press stunt. 
that was and it was basically reported and photographed that way. It's like Ozzy biting the head off a bird or yes, yeah, so something like that. Something like that. And by the way, I don't there is a picture of this. I do not recommend Googling it. I'm kind of sorry. I looked at it. It's it's really grotesque. Oh, yeah, it's horrible. And of course, he went straight to the hospital after this. I mean, it's a, it's, we're talking about a lot of blood here. So next number I want to throw out there is 250,000. That's in pounds. The contract they signed with Columbia Records within a week of this attention-getting incident. I can't say for certain that these events are related, but it gives you a bit of a sense of how these behaviors are kind of easily written off as rock and roll excess and showmanship at the time, and not not really maybe given the weight that maybe they should be given. I do think that the British tabloid press certainly played a part in their rise to popularity, right? And we kind of talked about that in the Oasis episode recently, where they released a single and got a little bit of fame and then started being crazy assholes. And the tabloids were like, these guys are easy to write about because they're sensational. And that spiked their popularity, got a lot more eyes on them and a lot more ears on their albums. And I'm not trying to entirely shit on that because so much of rock and roll is self-promotion. But I did get a sense in my research that you, you talked about not being able to separate the situations around the band from the music that's i don't really like that a whole lot i like the music to kind of stand on its own and some of this seemed like it was overly hyped because of some of their eccentricities and then they leaned into those eccentricities lyrics wise because clearly that's what's getting you attention right yeah it could be i think another way to process that might be I mean, I, th- I do think it's a fair criticism. That's certainly possibly what's going on here. To my eye, listening to interviews with these guys, listening to the lyrics, reading their story, they come off to me as very earnest. And maybe it's because of what happened to them. You know, it's possible. But I guess another way to recast that story about the press is that that's all fun and games. But that's also how people get chewed up in the system unfortunately right and sure. you know it's just it's obviously it's hard to predict when you're a journalist writing about something what effect your words are going to have but you should think a little bit about it in the early 90s those two things journalism and music were kind of always hand in hand there's always some sort of public events that would happen related to lots of musicians I mean, you talked about guns and roses earlier you know with axel rose like pissing in an airport floor or, you know all kind all kinds of stuff were going on so i, th- I think that that wasn't super uncommon for bands to get caught up in these publicity type events sure or even you throw it a little later like britney spears getting chewed up by the music machine and then very publicly having a breakdown and that being a huge story that everyone's like oh we can make a ton of money following her around and watching her go crazy it's you know it's it's a little exploitative certainly for sure so on that columbia records contract they record their debut record called generation terrorists and are very vocal in the press about how it's going to sell 30 million copies and how they're going to sell out Wembley stadium and set themselves on fire live on top of the pops. And the context for these brags is our next number, which is 40, the average number of people they were playing to at the time while they're making these <laughs> brags. We're talking empty clubs, but they had big dreams. And like you said, the press was definitely eating it up. The bravado and fake it till you make it attitude is, is a big part of what I, what resonates with me, let's say. Not so much the rock and roll excess aspect, but that was something they had in common with, I think, the times. You know, they were coming of age in this Britpop era, kind of at the tail end of the hair metal era. We've already referenced Guns N' Roses. So 
Next number I want to throw out to you. 10 million. That is the estimated number of records sold by Manic Street Preachers worldwide. Which is a lot. That is a lot. Given that I'd basically never heard of them until last week. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it's indicative of just how big this musical world can be. Perhaps it's indicative, as some of our hate mailers like to tell us, that we know nothing about music and how dare we. But clearly, they've made some kind of impact on the artistic <laughs> world. It was it was uneven their record sales. They were never big in the U.S., right? They they were primarily that is correct. Yeah, they're de- definitely Europe, UK band. But I just I just wanted to cut in real quick, just for you guys, especially uh, Marty and Tom, who probably don't know. I think like this record is an outlier for them as far as the band. Their later records, you guys would probably really like them because it's still it's good hard rock, played good, and that whole thing with the lyrics and everything that turned you off, Tom, that's not really going on anymore. And they just sort of turned into this a good band. But this album is really an yeah. outlier for Fair them. Fair enough. And I, I will say, I was intrigued enough by them that if, if another of their albums comes across my plate, I will not be like, nope, no chance. I will definitely listen to it again. Like I thought the album was okay. I, I part of me is just sort of admitting that I don't get it. Yeah, that's. I think that's fair. And it took me some time to get as well. So I'm going to try to bring some of that context to close out our by the numbers segment. The last number I want to tell you about is more than I'd care to admit. As in the number of hours I spent researching, listening, and generally trying to get <laughs> this record on a deep level (laughs) in prep for our show tonight. (laughs) Listen, we always try our damnedest to get the full story, but this week I felt an instant hard-to-describe kinship with the record, I'll be honest, even though it was my first time listening, and I really wanted to spend the time understanding it, and I recognized instantly that this is one of the downsides of how we do things, that it's not a lot of time to really get comfortable with something. So... Just letting you know that uh, I wanted to spend that time understanding it and understanding the band and what happened to them so that I could bring it to you, dear listeners. So thank you for being here, for streaming this, for caring enough to come every week and support what we're doing here, because it's definitely a labor of love. And we're trying hard to bring you well-researched, behind-the-scenes stories every week with a heaping dose of hilarity, which is perhaps most important, as I mentioned, when the subject matter turns dark. So... Thank you. You can support us, of course, by sharing this podcast with a friend or an appropriate fan group online or leaving us a five-star review. Or if you care to hear even more of our sonorous voices, hop over to Patreon. It's linked in the episode notes to hear our brand new bonus show called Song Battle, where we use a bracket system to argue over and eventually crown the best song of the 1990s. It's only five bucks a month. It's a beer per month you get some cool extra stuff if you're inclined but regardless we're going to keep bringing you this totally free weekly deep dive on records okay back to the story of the manic street preachers so these guys are overtly political as we mentioned they're leftist in the style of their heroes like the clash and they're very working class and there's this at the time as now there's the growing strain of nationalism on the rise in the UK, especially via a political party called the BNP, the British National Party, which I only brought that up because, of course, Morrissey was supporting this political group even back then (laughs) and draping himself in the British flag and saying Britain for the British. And anyway, this led to a little minor flame war where Richie called the Smiths in the UK press the biggest disaster which probably happened to the UK. This is just the saddest day in our lives that this is the future of rock and roll. 
All right, I like this album a lot more now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> the point, though, is that in their mind, and I do think this is sincere, that there is a clear and present danger that Britain and Western society in general is moving backwards, and it's fuel for their writing and for, and for some of their shows. So, okay, let's flash forward a bit to, to try to get up to where the record is. So their career is... is on the come up, their first record comes out in 92. They sell 250,000 copies of that record. Like we said, it's mostly a UK phenomenon, but they are, they tour through Europe and the UK. They gain fans. They're UK press darlings through this time. They make a follow-up with more money called Gold Against the Soul. That's released in 1993. It's recorded in some old manor house with lots of bells and whistles. And it has disappointing sales, although it actually makes it to eight on the UK charts. So it charts better, sells worse. The band sort of hates it from the jump, citing... Not as good a record, yeah. They felt like the corporate influence of the label and the corporate money, they kind of lost sight of themselves during that period and got a little unfocused with some of the rock and roll decadence that with money being thrown at them to make the record, right? They're still a working band that does not have a lot of money, though. I can't stress that enough. That continues for a little while yet. So you're telling me they sold 250,000 copies of their album. They don't have any money. And this is in the late 80s, where even if they got a dollar a record, that's still, it's not bad. And they're torn. That seems like poor money management. It's possible it's poor money management, but their next two records do not sell so well. So I think that is part of the problem. It could be that they spent too much money on making that second record, too, which mm -hmm. the label likes to give you a free credit card, but then you pay it all back, right? Point is, they're trying to get back to their roots. And Richie, in particular, starts writing a bunch of new stuff at this time. Some of it's influenced by a band field trip to Dachau, the concentration camp. Hard oh, to believe, right? Yes, that's... <laughs> Hence the and cheery attitude of this. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> yeah, I just want to interject real quick. If you're wondering how uh, depressing this album is, it doesn't have one, but it has two songs about the no. Holocaust. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of rough. And he's also doing lots of reading on historical fascism and all the all of the terrible parts of human nature. He's he's yeah. quoted around this time as saying, "Evil is an essential part of the human condition, and the only way to get over it is to recognize it's in all of us." And this guy was depressed reading about like all the horrible things humans have done to each other. I know that the two aren't necessarily connected, but probably doesn't help a whole lot. <laughs> Gives you a sense of the, the mindset. So they have this bleaker set of lyrics, and to match the bleaker tone of the lyrics and remove themselves from the corporate money fountain a bit more, when Columbia, and actually the imprint they're on on Columbia is called Epic Records, when Epic Records, which is a subsidiary of Columbia, ask you know where they want to record their next record they say let's do it on the cheap let's do it in cardiff at a very small studio in fact i think epic records wanted them to go to barbados or something like that <laughs> like go ahead rack up the bill see what happens but they're like no no let's stay in town they go to this place called sound space it's run down it's in the red light district of cardiff the manix they call themselves this is a little pretentious they call themselves method musicians you know, like they're trying to live and breathe what they're talking about. I, I can understand where they're coming from. But basically, they were really stoked about this location. They thought it would help bring back their focus, bring them back into their playing, the opposite of, like I said, rock star decadence. Okay, so we talked about how Nicky Wire and Richie would typically work together. But apparently during this period, Richie kind of took over. He's credited with 
they can't quite decide, but something like 75 or 80% of the lyrics on this record. And part of the reason for that is that Nicky Wire, I guess, was happily married at the time and, and wasn't depressed at all. He was pretty, <laughs> he was in a good spot. Whereas Richie was feeling inspired by his, by the doldrums of life and all this reading he's doing and visiting concentration camps and all the other encroaching chaos of the world, right? Yeah, I can see the happily married Nicky Wire coming back and being like, you know, I've been thinking that our taxes are too high. Maybe we should uh, cut some of those social <laughs> programs now that I'm a homeowner and I guess, you know, I got a wife and kids to support. You know? It all starts to change. Yeah. Speaking of his name, Wire, I watched some live performances. He is, I think he's only 6'3", but he towers over the other members of this band. Huh. It's kind of scary. Interesting. He's like significantly above average height. And I think they must all be slightly, at least slightly below average height. But okay, he looks like he's on stilts or something. Okay, they're just a bunch of malnourished Welsh miners or something like that. (laughs) So by the end of 93, they've written the songs to mostly Richie's lyrics. They head into the studio in January of 1994. And a little more context for the mood here, as if we weren't already in it, enough of a bummer, is James, the lead singer's fiance, dumps him and their longtime manager dies of cancer right at that time. Yo. So there's, there's really a, a cloud over them, in particular the death of their manager. who was a close friend of theirs. He really, they credited him with a lot of their success up to that point. And, you know, I give this context not only because of what's on the tape, but because of what happens to Richie mainly in the next 12 months or so. So as we alluded to during the sessions, Richie doesn't really do too much. He doesn't have much to do. He, he doesn't do anything musically, in fact. And... Like I said, I think he's actually playing real guitar on stage at this point, at least some of the time, but he doesn't play a note on this record. So his part's kind of done, but he hangs out at the studio every day anyway, drinking, crying, sleeping in the control room (laughs) all day, every day. That's what they said. And it's so really very Sid Barrett-esque, sadly. The band, on the other hand, is, is like super energized. They like the new songs. For the trio, there's like this renewed sense of purpose. They were really excited to return to a what they called a fearlessness about commercial failure, which is coming, I assure you. So <laughs> they're telling the engineer, the engineer's just some local guy, cheap guy. They want the music angular. They want it essential. The whole band is taking this very disciplined approach to recording. So again, opposite of rock star decadence, they're showing up promptly every morning at 10. They're working for 12 hours straight. And so they get they get through it, right? They finish mixing it. Everything's done in May of 1994. They mix it in a different studio over in London. The mixing engineer is a guy called Mark Freegard, who had previously worked with the Breeders. In fact, he gets a co-production credit on Last Splash, along with Kim Deal. And he talked about how his, his goal was to accentuate the flat, suffocating nature of the record. And again, I think the production on this record is quite good. I, I kind of feel like the criticism so far has been about maybe the songwriting or how the songwriting and the melody fit together. But to me, the production and the tones on it are are excellent. I would agree. I think it's mixed well, too. There's not a lot of muddiness going on, not a lot of stuff running together. And I also agree with the tones. I think that they they didn't just stick the knobs in one place since they were done, which is how the whole album's going to sound which a lot of bands do, and it's not inherently terrible, but this did seem like it was more thought out in terms of production than I was anticipating when I first started listening to it. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so they released the first single from this record, Faster, the one we played at the top. They booked some summer festival gigs. They go on top of the pops, 
a very popular television program in the UK. This performance causes a record 25,000 people to call in and complain. It's I watched it. It's very punk energy. The lead singer, James, is wearing a ski mask, which UK listeners might call a balaclava the entire time. They are all wearing a bunch of random military garb, like cobbled together from military surplus stores around Europe, and there's sort of pillars of actual fire around them. And to be honest, it seems fairly tame by today's standards, but definitely exciting in rock and roll. I guess the ski mask was an unintentional symbol of the IRA, or either the band said that was not intentional. Oh, yeah. So some folks were pretty freaked out by that, but it's it's got energy. And I have to say, like watching these guys live is they seem very exciting. I think the songs pop uh, in particular there. Sure. And, you know, I could see them actually being supporters of like a Welsh independence movement or something like that. That would probably be philosophically in line with what they do, what they're, they're into. You know, I didn't get any, I did not get any hint of that actually, that they don't seem that engaged with Welsh nationalism. Perhaps it's because it's been beaten down so much. Cause I don't think any of them speak Welsh. I could mm. be wrong. Listeners correct me. And you know, we did, we covered another Welsh band on the podcast many moons ago called super furry animals. And they were also, you know, they were friends with this band at least to an extent. And part of this movement called the Cool Cymru movement, which is the Welsh term for Wales, where there was a renaissance of Welsh music happening around Cardiff at the time. Super Furry Animals were a part of that. Manic Street Preachers were a part of it. So, But I think in both cases, I remember we alluded to something like the Super Furry Animals might be pro-Welsh nationalism, and some listener wrote in, it's like, no, they're, they don't care at all about that. I will be honest, literally the first time that I put the album on, I was like 30 seconds in, and I was like, are they speaking Welsh? Is this what Welsh <laughs> sounds like? Because I can't understand a fucking word this guy is saying. And then it got to a point in the song where it's like, oh no, I definitely recognize like four or five words I know in a row there, so that, okay. <laughs> you mean you mean after like the sample that begins every song that goes on for the first yeah, time? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, after the yeah. after the weird sample, yes. Okay, we're almost the end of our story here, and then we are going to talk about the songs, but let's finish it out. So, they start playing some shows before the album comes out. You know, first time they're playing the songs. There's a story about how I just thought this was interesting. They're really big in Thailand for some reason. Some Thai DJ was like playing the hell out of them. And so they have all these fans and they go to Thailand. That's the first place they play these songs. And there are these young fans there who have the for real thing like written in Sharpie on their arm. Like that's a badge of honor. And somebody some young kid fan presents Richie with a set of ceremonial knives and asks if he's going to, if he will use them to cut himself that night on stage. And Jesus, he does do that. So shit is getting dark, right? So back to the UK, it's July of 94. Their singles out. Richie's drinking and self harm has become life threatening and he gets committed to a hospital for treatment. I couldn't get much detail here as to exactly what happened here. Could have been an actual suicide attempt. May have just been him losing a bunch of weight because it seems like he was also struggling with anorexia at this time. And as an added context, the song on this record entitled 4ST7LB is a reference to four stone seven pounds, also known as 69 pounds, which is the weight below which death is said to be medically unavoidable for an anorexic. Hmm. So he's struggling with a lot of stuff. The band, for their part, decides to keep their summer gigs as a trio, in part to promote the upcoming album that isn't quite out yet, and in part to have money to pay for this private hospital 
that Richie's at because obviously they really want him to get better. So here we are finally at the release of this record, right? The Holy Bible, a not at all arrogant name for your album. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this is August 30th, 1994. It comes out to a mixed critical reaction and doesn't sell that great. NME compared it a lot in their review to In Utero. And I should mention that Cobain's, Kurt Cobain's suicide was on a lot of people's minds that year. because That was the same year he committed suicide in April. And enemy says stuff like it's a sneering, hateful, merciless, intelligent, articulate, nasty, raging assault of scattershot sound bites. It's not elegant, but it's effective. I don't quite think it's a bad review, but it's not terribly nice. And they definitely make light of Richie's mental state and, and things like that. So anyway, the record debuts at number six, but it sinks quickly after that. And that's probably in part because it happens to come out on the same day as another record we covered recently. Oh, definitely maybe, right? Which is Oasis's <laughs> yeah. Definitely Maybe. Same exact day. Just so you know, now this one is, is certified UK gold, which is 100,000 copies. It has sold a decent amount, but not, not as much as their first record. And not a lot by the standards of, I think, what Columbia was expecting. Uh, for them. But, you know, retrospectively, by the early 2000s, it's considered a classic in the 90s. It's remained very popular in the UK. Melody Maker listed it as the 15th best album of all time on an early 2000s list. NME listed at 44 on a similar list. And Kerrang!, Axl Rose's favorite magazine, placed it at 10th. So, okay. We're going to round out our story here. We're almost to the songs. The album comes out at the end of the summer. Shortly thereafter, Richie is back out and playing with the band. He's on Prozac now. He's working a 12-step AA-type program, so it seems like things are looking up. And he's writing a bunch of new stuff. And he is quoted as saying he wants the next record to sound like Nine Inch Nails meets Pantera meets Screamadelica, which is a Screaming Trees album. They play some holiday gigs in London. They end up trashing their instruments at the last gig, which I've just never been a fan of. But apparently it was totally spontaneous for no reason, and it definitely did not make sense financially. That was a $26,000 bill between their equipment and the Oof. venue's equipment, and they definitely did not have that money at the time. Damn. So, yeah, you're right. They weren't really financially managing themselves very well, I think, overall. Okay, and now to the thrilling conclusion of our story. Come February... 1995, James and Richie were set to fly out to America ahead of the band just a little bit to promote the upcoming big album tour with Sponge. Oh. Remember those guys? Oh, yeah. One of my favorite karaoke <laughs> songs. Is their song Plowed? Was that their one? Yeah, Plowed. In a world of human That's my karaoke jam. I love that song. Is that really? Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> oh, man. I'd, I'd never like that song. <laughs> well, <laughs> apparently the, the British joke was like they couldn't believe why all these... Because uh, Sponge to a British person is a cake. <laughs> so they're just like, why, why are all these American bands named after food? They thought it was... Right, exactly. Guess. Yeah, yeah. That's a different band. Okay, but unfortunately, the day they're meant to fly out, Richie doesn't show up. This is February 1st, 1995. He just disappears. He left all his belongings in his hotel room, although they ultimately found his passport back at his apartment in Cardiff, indicating that he at least stopped back by there. And a couple weeks later, his car is found by a toll bridge somewhere near Cardiff, and he's never been seen again. No body has ever been recovered. So it's remained a little bit of a mystery. Now, a couple pieces of information. The band say he was slightly obsessed with the idea 
of faking his own death and disappearing from the entertainment world. He just something he talked about a lot. But the bridge part seems to indicate a suicide. And of course, the tabloids jumped on that instantly. The battery in his car was run down, perhaps indicating he'd been living there for a little bit. But also the steering wheel had a lock on it. Like a uh, a low jack the thing? club thing the club, the club. yeah the yeah. club <laughs> right right which maybe indicates that he was going to come back anyway there's no physical evidence that he took his own life but that is what we can surmise over the years fans have reported seeing him at various foreign places but nothing credible no credible sightings and his family finally decided to rule him legally dead in 2008 so 14 years later but he was 27 when he disappeared so 27 club I really have to say. A big part of what I was the most excited about for this episode was for you to bust out your cork board with the strings attacking all the different <laughs> yeah, aspects yeah, yeah, together right. and True detective. crack the case yeah, on this one. Right. Yeah. Has anyone? I guess we. I guess it's impossible to know. But has anyone ever pulled off the fake your own death and disappear from the limelight maneuver? Like, has it, has anyone ever uh, come back from that and said like, yeah, that's what I did? Because it would be a cool move. Eddie did. Eddie did from Eddie and the Cruises. You remember the end of it? He was standing in, in front of that uh, the storefront watching the TV. Are you talking about a movie? Story about his band. <laughs> yes. Do you guys not know Eddie and the Cruises? How much younger are you guys than me? <laughs> I, I think I might have seen that, but I'm, I'm talking about a real. I'm talking about a real person. You know, people said this thing about Andy Kaufman. Uh, they said uh, obviously about uh, Elvis, Jim Morrison, but it's never happened, right? Billy the Kid, Al Capone, has been famously said to have been wrongfully <laughs> listed as dead, but there was. An old guy later that kept saying he was him. Right, right. Yeah. there you go. Yes, yeah, Hitler. <laughs> People have said it about Hitler. Well, let's draw a little bit of a distinction between places where there was a body to be found, and this time, which is a little mysterious, that no body or remains have ever been recovered. Yeah, it's not that crazy, but it's it's definitely a little bit of a mystery in the modern world. So, isn't that what happened with Jeff Buckley? Didn't he go swimming and his body was never recovered? Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, he's yeah. presumed drowned, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. So maybe it's something to do with water where yeah. that can happen, right? But okay, the somewhat happy ending here is that the band, after a while, decided to continue on and make a lot of Richie's new lyrics into new songs and their follow up record, Everything Must Go, sold way more records. In fact, it went platinum. That's one million sold, and it's actually on Robert Dimery's list as well. So, Tom, it will be coming across your desk eventually. Yeah, I'm going to have to be washing my hair that day. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I should mention, they continue to tour today. In fact, they're playing Edinburgh Castle this summer, where Tom and I used to play when Tom was a drummer. No, I'm, I'm joking. They're playing the real Edinburgh Castle. We played a crappy club in San Francisco. Shitty bar in San Francisco that I actually think is closed. Which is a it huge might be. bummer. Yeah, I mean, it should the fire department should have closed it a long oh, time yeah, ago. Absolutely, that was very not very not safe. But no, they're still on tour, and they stayed a trio from there. And they always have a mic set up for their old bandmate, and I believe they still give twenty five percent of everything they make to his estate. Oh, hmm. that's good. That's cool of them. Okay, I know it's been a long and depressing story, but here we are to dive in and talk about these songs. You guys ready? Let's do it. Yeah. Okay, let's play a clip. We're going to go chronologically through the record via the focus list. So let's start with the album opener. It's a song called Yes.
of all, this song grew on me. I think more than any other song. Maybe it's because it's the first song on the on the album. I like the guitar work on a lot of this album. I know notice that it has kind of like a math rocky type thing happening with how the guitar lines are written, which was interesting. Also, this song has good harmonies, which which I'm not sure surprisingly who's surprisingly good harmonies, right? Yeah. Which I I don't know who else was singing. It was uh, James and. I don't know who else is singing. Maybe it's just James. I think James basically, he's the singer, and I think he overdubs himself. On this song, particularly over the chorus, I thought his voice sounds great over the song. I I really liked when he pushes and when he's actually just kind of belting. I think he sounds really good. I think that some of the times he doesn't, but we'll get to that later. But there's a lot of elements that I like in this song. I just feel like there's a lot more words than there needs to be and it prevents me from getting a rhythmic sense of the melody that kind of blends with the rest of the song yeah i i sort of hear you i do like this song i think it's a success it's not quite my favorite but it's one of my favorites in addition to the math rock comment i think there's a menacing quality to a lot of the riffs that's really interesting to me that separate it from other like like in some ways this a track like this is dated it definitely sounds like 90s rock the way the pre-chorus opens up to me is is very 90s although it works right but there's something interesting going on maybe it's because the guitar player and the drummer grew up together and playing together so long there's this like strong rhythmic interplay concept of what those two guys do and yeah, I don't know. Uh, to me, it's like triumphant and fun. But sorry, to your criticism about the lyrics, I do know what you mean. I almost wish they were singing in another language because I've kind of tuned it out in my listening experience a little bit. These lyrics are... They're weird. They're very weird. They're about prostitutes. I mean, literally the opening line on this record of singing is, for sale, dumb cunt, same dumb questions. So you kind of know why they didn't make it a single, right? He talks about like rip his cock off and make him a girl and <laughs> fuck him and call him Rita. Like, yes, all right. It's, yeah. it's pretty fucked up. Right. But there is, so it's, I do think it's kind of interesting though to pair that with this strong underlying pop sensibility. But I think the main thing I'm responding to, and you'll hear this on all the songs in my comments is I think it rocks. Yeah. I, I, I this is the song. This is the first song I heard. I think f- from this band, I heard this song and I thought, wow, that, that's kind of cool. It's interesting. And then I liked it. And then I actually got the record. But when I read the lyrics, yeah, like you were saying, Tom, the lyrics didn't make, I, I was confused. Yeah. Like these aren't the lyrics in this song. And then, uh, yeah. And these lyrics are really, really dark and fucked up. And, But it's funny, what you think of as a flaw, I almost think of as a feature, because I'm just impressed. I know you guys have all, you know, are all musicians and have written songs. And to take someone's lyrics, and sometimes it's like awkward to try and put it to music. But the fact that uh, James Dean Bradfield didn't change anything, didn't take stuff out, just kept all these lyrics and somehow crammed them into this song. I don't know, to me, it's just like impressive and once i knew what the lyrics were and i listened to it i just it just all works for me it it, it's weird but it all works for me frankly i enjoyed reading the lyrics like i liked the lyrical content and reading them i actually liked the lyrics a lot i just felt like he was trying to cram 40 words into where 20 words would have fit a lot of the time yeah yeah (laughs) this is kind of a side note but do you guys know who carl blau is he's a he's a singer songwriter he's he lives in philly uh, he he publishes books of just lyrics, and encourages people to record songs with his lyrics and send them to him. Hmm. So so it's kind of a cool idea. You know, maybe this band could have maybe benefited buying his uh his book. 
Well, here's something we've avoided so far. I'm not sure I fully believe this, and this is going to be sacrilege to anyone who loves the band, I'm sure. But this might truly be a Sid Barrett situation where, because they do, these lyrics are interesting and dark, but they border on overwrought consistently, right? And so maybe it is a Pink Floyd situation where the band needed to jettison this person to kind of take off a little bit more. Because I think, again, I think the music is kind of unimpunable. I love the music here. I think if anything's holding me back from full embracing, it would be the lyrics. And I do appreciate the context of the story of friendship and, you know, where this darkness came from. That's an important factor. But that might also be true. They might have gotten better when they just worked as a trio. It's a good point. Yeah. Let's move it right along here to, speaking of overwrought, Titles, anyway. <laughs> the title of the next song is If White America Told the Truth for One Day, Its World Would Fall Apart. important to note that there's no spacing in between any of this it's all just crammed together as one run on i could i couldn't even read the whole thing like i couldn't get it i couldn't get it to expand <laughs> i still think the song rocks i like the they do the alternating three four 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 thing again i think there's they're really strong rhythmically and i know we talk a lot on this podcast about lazy songwriters i feel like that's not happening here i feel like they're always there with another part they don't just repeat the same thing. They they yeah. write more stuff. I think this is my favorite song on the album, personally. I actually liked this one a lot. And I liked it because of the musical composition more than I liked it because of the lyrics. But I did think that, you know, when they kick into that one part, you know, there there ain't no black in the Union Jack. There ain't no uh there ain't enough white in the stars and stripes. Like that's a cool feel. It kind of comes in, a little halftime feel. It's very well constructed. It goes back to rambling after that. I like that part too. Yeah. My my one note at the beginning of the song though was like I went and saw Bad Religion in twenty twenty two and the guy from Bad Religion had a disco sucks shirt on. And I was like, It's fucking twenty twenty two, man. Get over it. And the whole like I'm pissed off about Reagan and Thatcher at the beginning of the song. I'm just like, it's fucking nineteen ninety four. Like, I get it. They sucked, but they've been out of power for quite some time. Well, like you know, how do you guys feel about the Brady Bill? The very end. Yeah. Fuck fuck the Brady Bill. Is it in this one? Is a yeah, yeah. Ow. But I thought the Brady Bill oh, was fuck like the Brady Bill, that's right. That's right. Prevented people from like establish yes. a waiting period for firearm I don't think they really I, I don't think they really knew what they were <laughs> no no they, they no they knew they, they definitely knew the, the entire song is tongue in cheek because oh, they're talking okay. from the perspective of who they consider an asshole that's mm. the, there ain't enough white mm. in the stars and stripes can we can we also point out for a second how incredibly cringeworthy it is the whole conservatives say 
and Democrats say before they say they ain't no white in the yeah, <laughs> they ain't right, enough white right, in the stars right. and stripes. That, that like, is a on. little cringy. But I do just to compliment that section at the end. The guitar solo rips in this song, and it does the it's in there for the perfect amount of time, which is to say not too long. And then that's when it goes into the brand new fuck the Brady Bill <laughs> section. And sorry, it was just alluded to. We just want to make sure everyone knows the Brady Bill was a law that mandated background checks on gun purchases from around this time. So that was a topical reference, right? Oh, I remember that being raged against in my household growing up. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Brady Bill, goddamn. This the chorus of this song reminds me of like good Green Day. Like maybe American Idiot, the good part of the American Idiot Green Day stuff. There's a there's a triumphant power punk element to it that i that i like i got a little queen vibes there too we mentioned this context but i think that's the other important context is they're at a weird time in history where the most popular thing in britain is Britpop, where everyone they're doing the opposite of talking about anything in particular right we talked about it on the definitely maybe episode it's all about going out and having a fun night and having a beer and being a rock star and that's it that was very popular at the time so politically charged stuff just just wasn't you know and i think even i think similarly musically they're maybe in line with their peers because green day would have been not too far around the corner they probably came out in 94 as well dookie or something like that or i think some of the stuff sounds a little bit like nine inch nails we talked about guns and roses right so context is important okay let's move on down the list next song we're going to talk about is called archives of pain Tell us what you think. This one, he's calling out serial killers, and it's about uh, obsession, the media's obsession with the serial killers. This song I like because this is the thing. You know, the thing is, I'm thinking everything, uh, all the criticisms you're saying is they're all really valid because a lot of this does seem overwrought. And like, two, they're trying to get all these uh, political things in and all these like name checks for different things. And it does come across like that. But I don't know, for some reason... I feel like uh, that's what I said once I once I dug in and realized that I can't separate the fact that the person that's writing these lyrics is definitely has a real mental illness and was struggling and it's sort of raw and makes it all so raw that this is all being presented like that and they didn't try to clean it up they just put put all these like really dark lyrics that that it's almost like too much too over the top but they just put it all out there and it is too much and it is too much and it is too over the top but i don't know for some reason that's something that really resonated with me i didn't hate this song i like a little bit more when they have a bright aesthetic in the music to contrast the darkness of the lyrics 
And I thought this one leaned a little bit more into the darkness. And if I'm going to give a cast a little bit of shade at uh, Nikki Wire here, this bass line sounds like something that I would have written in high school. I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. This is, this is fucking rocking, baby. Yeah. It's not the most sophisticated bass line. I don't think it needs to be sophisticated to be successful, though. Actually, I hear what you're saying. This is definitely more that menacing machine vibe this is the one that right, reminded right, me a right. little bit of nine inch nails or maybe nine inch nails right more accurately the david bowie i'm afraid of americans era where he's clearly like pulling from that kind of industrial nine inch nails thing i thought this was maybe the best produced track so i'm tempted to call it my favorite it was kind of a toss-up for me between this and the first track and the other thing it it you know i love like the t- the guitar tone here in particular you get this snarling guitar i think his guitar playing and tone are generally pretty on point the timestamp i want to call it is 418 where he gets this great tone it's like metallic it's unfeeling gets a little bit of like slash melodic stuff but there's enough crunchiness in there too to really do it for me really good james dean bradfield is a really good guitar player and you could tell you mentioned slash he's a really big fan of slash i mean he usually you'll see him with a les paul usually always just plays a les paul he definitely he's a big fan of slash but he's a shredder and he could play i mean i've seen him do acoustic where he play that song yes and he'll sing it and play that intricate guitar plot and sing it and yeah. the guy's good i mean he's really good that's good context he's singing and playing lead guitar over some of these complex sections, that's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Yes. You know, to do all this as a trio, effectively, for, for most of their life as a band. I, I wanted to mention, too, that, you know, the other thing this song kind of reminds me of that I like is when he gets to the pre-chorus shouty part, it really reminds me of Roger Waters as Pink on the most mm. deranged tracks on the wall. So it just it really has a I don't know it has a vibe to me that I that I just respond to so I I think it's great yeah you like that the Sid Barrett narrative is kind of running through you absolutely dude I'm a big sucker for four on the floor straightforward beat that then has a part where it's just halftime which happens in this song which it's 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 such a hacky kind of easy thing to pull off but for some reason it never gets old to me. I mean, I've already hit on it, but they're just yeah. the opposite of lazy when it yeah, comes to right. musical writing. And I just, that's a breath of fresh air for me, especially in rock music. I think it would have been easy to phone a lot of these sections in or repeat more sections or do a little more strummy strum. I mean, you're a freaking trio, right? It's just like, I get why that would be tempting, but they seem to never default to that, which is nice. Yeah, they're not formulaic. I definitely would give that to them. All their songs seem like they have had a lot of care put into their construction. Right. Okay. Let's move it along here to the next song we're going to talk about. It's called Revolve. Fresh up the red 
song is a fucking parody of itself, right? Like, this is the song that I I was immediately like, oh my, like, this is way overdone. You're just name checking uh, yeah. historical figures and yeah. making, like, uh, casting aspersions on their sexual tendencies. It, this was a fail for me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll be honest. Of an album that I really have been kind of obsessed with for a while and love, this is my least favorite song on the record for, for that reason that you're saying there now. I don't know what the fuck's going on. Well, I'm glad we all agree because I put it on here as my low point as well. I feel in addition to the lyrics being the weakest and the most infantile, I think, I really hate the production. I think the production failed them here as well. You have this underwater guitar thing combined with the weird underwater vocal effects. It's too busy. And then the verses, he almost sounds like that 30s radio announcer that Tom likes to do sometimes. Oh, the Atlantic accent? <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Boy, Yeltsin likes to fuck little boys. Like, you know, that said, watching a few of their live shows, I do see how maybe... I think for sometimes for bands, it can be challenging because they get, if they're playing these songs live, and especially if they're road testing them before they record them, they get a weird feedback loop from the crowd. I see how the chorus of this song was popular at arenas and stadiums. It's simple. It's chanty. It seems exciting, you know, in spite of itself. I just don't think the rest of the song supports it. So this ended up being the second single on the record. I guess that's what I'm saying is they really... Hmm believed in this song in a way that we don't maybe it's because the record company felt it was the least offensive lyrically i'm not sure i think just like you're saying the chorus the chorus is kind of catchy when you hear it so that's probably what they thought oh that's kind of a catchy chorus but you know what i'm curious i was gonna ask you did any of you hear the u.s because when they did like a i'm asking any of you what i know you guys (laughs) (laughs) You guys definitely did not, but the 10th anniversary, they put the label was so uh, unhappy with the mix that they turned in that they had it remixed by that guy, Tom Lord Algae. And, and he remixed it, and, and that was they wanted that to be the U.S. mix of the record, but it ended up never using it. But when they did the 10th anniversary reissue, they have it. So it's on hmm. Spotify now. You could hear it. And the band liked it better, and I'll be honest, I actually like it better, too, because it is more of just a real rock and roll mix of it. The guitars are more forward, and it just sounds more bombastic and mixed. Yeah, that definitely would have helped. Yeah. I, I just felt like yeah. there was not nearly as much going on in this song as there were in other songs. It seems more simple in its overall construction. And again, maybe that was a positive thing. Maybe the record company was like, yeah, hey, this is like easy. It's it's more pop songy in its construction. It's fewer chords. There's not as many rhythmic changes and stuff like that. But that's what kept me interested in this band during the course of the week is the the rhythmic aspects and the, the care that went into the construction. And this one just didn't seem to have that. Plus, I think his vocal delivery on this one is my least favorite by far because he has this kind of the sneering punk affectation, but that only works when what you're saying justifies that or like is cool enough for you to have that sneer because you're saying something that's thoughtful or political or even just aggressive. And this just seemed childish. And so, yeah, missed the mark entirely for me. (laughs) All right, let's finish it out with the last song and the first single but it does appear chronologically pretty late in the record it's called faster
not a bad song, but the guitar solo is weak. Yo, I, I wrote that down too because I, I thought that was so odd because his, usually his solos are really on point, but it's you didn't quite get it, dude. You're missing some oomph. He's like playing a pentatonic scale or something. It was like... Shredding. He's just doing like a shredding, yeah, just like a shredder solo. I was genuinely surprised by that because I really think his work, his guitar work, is really on point throughout the record. So this really felt obviously lacking to me, and I'm surprised they didn't go back and do it because it seems like a lot of care was put in. I This is one where I kind of understand what Tom's talking about, about the total lack of rhyming. Like the way these verse lines are just out there naked you got to be really confident that what you're saying is going to land with meaning on the listener to just unabashedly not rhyme so i i think that criticism is i'm feeling it in this song that said it is rhythmically interesting you got a verse again that's really only one chord but i think they keep you entertained throughout with a sense of rhythm one thing that's interesting about the lyrics i will say is that you can reimagine them as like Marilyn Manson or like Slipknot <laughs> yeah, without yeah. having to stretch your mind much. Yeah, reading the lyrics now, I'm just looking over the lyrics now, and you're right. These lyrics could be like a Marilyn Manson lyric. <laughs> yeah. I will say that this is the one that gave me a real serious Freddie Mercury vibes on his voice. Dude can wail when he gets up there. He's really got, he's got a good voice. No, he sounds good. I get Actually, I do get why this is the single. I think it is a fun rocker of a song. I call it like a roller coaster. The way they kind of loop these parts, it, it does kind of elevate it from a pop song. And that, plus the vocal affect, does remind me a little bit of Queen and how they're able to, to stitch those parts together. So we kind of started with the complaints and worked back to the comments on this one. <laughs> yeah. But definitely not my favorite. But yeah, I mean, I would recommend going and checking out that Top of the Pops version of this. I think it gives, a to see these guys play live even a little bit, I think gives a little additional context as to why they were popular. Yeah, I think that... Particularly of the chorus, there's some nice like chunky guitar work that's going on of the chorus that I really like, and it contrasts well when that like descending bass line comes in. It, it, it's a well constructed song. I wouldn't say that this is my favorite, but this is maybe my second favorite song on the album. I did like if White America, blah blah blah, better than this, but it was it was relatively close. I enjoyed listening to this one, and it came at a good place on the album because I was needing something to bring me back into it. Honestly, on multiple re-listens through, I was kind of losing my losing the thread of the album by the time it got to this, and it did drag me back into more attentive listening. Yeah, I mean, we haven't brought it up yet, but it's a long album. This is classic CD era. They put too many songs on the freaking album. It's I don't need an hour's worth of your music. You, you really could have trimmed it a little bit. And another thing that's nice about this is one of the tighter songs. They tend to write these like five-minute songs. So getting to something that's, what, three and change, you know, you, you do kind of take notice of that. Yeah. Okay. I think we've gabbed quite enough about The Holy Bible by Manic Street Preachers. It's time to vote. Did you really need to hear this record before you die? I'm going to throw it first to Marty. Unfortunately, this I don't have room in my thousand albums for this one. I'm excited to 
knowing that there's another one on another one of their albums on his list, I'm excited to hear that one, and maybe that one will make it, but this one does not for me. Tom, what say you? Yeah, Marty, you actually nailed my sentiment perfectly. I don't hate this album. I thought this album was pretty good, but I don't have room in my top 1001 for it. So, sorry, it's got to go. Good thing we invited guest Rob on. Rob, what do you say? <laughs> well, shockingly, I'm going to say, yes, you know what? I fully admit this album is definitely not for everyone. It's a hard listen. And I've always had a problem with things like Daniel Johnston and stuff. When there are people that it's obvious that they have mental illness, it almost feels like they're exploiting them, them in, in a way. Uh, listening to it is almost like you're exploited because you hear that they have a mental illness and it's sort of like, it's it's almost too, you're almost too close to it all and too raw. But I, for me, there's so much going on in here that it's just this one man was having struggles, struggling with so many things and trying to get it out. So just for that alone, I feel like it's worth listening to and people just you know diving in and then and then maybe that's it maybe putting it away and then not thinking about it anymore fair enough okay well i'm gonna i think it's fairly obvious i really like the record it really grew on me the story helped i'm excited that i discovered this band we joke a lot about robert dimery's over indexing on uk records i do think that's true but the ideal scenario right is that he picks up on something that absolutely vital and important that we as Americans missed. And I completely missed this band. I think that's kind of what happened here. I should point out, I have not listened to the rest of their catalog yet, so I'm excited to listen to more of them. But I will definitely listen to this record again. It's a yes for me. And given that it's a tie, tie goes to the runner, Manic Street Preachers, baby, you're on our list. You made it. All right. Congrats, congrats. Okay. Rob stacking the deck on this album. This is a fix. It's fucking rigged. <laughs> Thrilling conclusion. All right. We just have a couple things to get to here before we close out for the evening. The first one, the microphone's going to stay with me. We're going to dip our hands in the old mailbag and read a few missives from our lovely listeners. So I have the mailbag here. And the first one is Eric from Red Lion PA. He says, hey guys, I discovered your podcast a while back and I've been obsessively listening. I finally caught up to real time today and I agree with you a lot and also shake my fist at you on occasion. For instance, your hate of Eric Crapton almost equals mine. All right. <laughs> Here's a few comments. Steve Earle, you're so wrong. Guitar Town is a fantastic album and the title track contains what I consider to be one of the greatest single lines in any song, which is I've got a two pack habit and a motel tan. I think we called that out as being good amidst yeah. the record not being that great. Uh, yeah. Listen, I'm open to reinterpreting Steve Earle, by the way. I do like his acting, and that must have been in the first 25 episodes, right? So I feel like we've softened a little bit. Did they really write Eric Crapton? Or did you just. I read these exactly as they're given to me, Marty. How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> okay. In as much as I can read uh, while I talk. But okay. Uh, another comment. I listened to Cindy Lauper today, the episode we did on the Cindy Lauper record, She's So Unusual. And how did you miss it? The synth solo in All Through the Night is a straight up Hooters riff. It sounds like half the stuff on the Hooters Nervous Night. It makes sense because a good portion of the band was on that album, but they recycled a lot. 
well, I haven't listened to the Hooters album uh, ever, and uh, don't plan to, to be honest. But they were a PA band, so I guess uh, this they guy were. From Redline must be into them. Yeah, they were. Well, actually, he closes by saying, I, "By the way, I grew up in Baltimore, so I appreciate the long O's I hear in your accents. Keep being both entertaining and annoying. I have no idea what what you're talking about. Yeah, seriously." Maybe if we did a phone call, we could figure it out. But yeah, I don't know what you said. I don't know what he means. Yeah. Okay. And I have one more here from kind of from the archives. Ethereal Jack writes, I just wanted to say, as I listened to your maggot brain episode, and you guys talked about a character called Amp Fiddler, an interesting generational connection is that he majorly helped a young kid get his start in music and sampling. A guy who changed hip hop and drumming forever, one Jay Dilla. Thanks for the podcast, guys. And as context, because there wasn't a lot of context in this in this missive, I, I looked this up. Ann Fiddler was a touring member of Funkadelic and Parliament in the 80s and 90s. I actually wasn't on that episode, so I don't quite remember what we said about him. But apparently, while he was on the Lollapalooza tour in the early 90s, he introduced both Jay Dilla and Q-Tip to the Akai MPC sampler and like loaned the machine to them so that they could start hmm. learning it. And to say this Akai NPC sampler changed hip hop is like a gross understatement, by the way. But it was like a fairly new piece of technology at the time. And he was apparently very generous with teaching them how to use it. So it sounds like this guy Amp Fiddler, which is a great nickname, may have uh, kicked off the next generation of music right there. Awesome. Cheers. Love that context. Love everything you write in. If we got it right, if we got it wrong, if we missed something, if you just want to yell at us, we'll take it all. Send us an email over at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. We'd absolutely love to hear from you. Now, there is only one thing remaining here, which is to get our homework for next week. I'm going to throw it over to Tom, who has the Albinator, I believe. Thank you very much, Rob. I do have the Albinator, and frankly, I am too depressed to make a funny joke about what the Albinator is doing based upon what the uh, album was this week. So we're just going to pull that Albinator out and have it run through its programming here. Very sophisticated program the Albinator has. So without any further ado, drum roll, please. We will be listening to... The album is Gasoline Alley by Rod Stewart. Ooh. Rod the Mod. I am not super excited about that. <laughs> yeah. Not not, super you not, about you don't that want to one. dive into Rod Stewart's solo catalog, Tom? How dare you? Uh, no, I really don't. Once he stopped working with... Uh, Jeff Beck? Yeah, with Jeff Beck. I'm not interested at all. <laughs> okay. Well, that'll be an interesting journey to undertake. Thanks, Special thanks to Rob from That Record Got Me High podcast. I will say I was really excited doing this. I've listened to you guys, but I'm glad when I first started, I started my podcast like six years ago and uh, originally I had a partner, Barry Stock, and I made a list of records that I wanted eventually to do and this album was on there. The Holy Bible was on there and we never, we still have not done it on That Record Got Me High, so I'm glad I got to come <laughs> no? on. Okay. Well, that's right. I'm glad you got to come over and do it with us. We appreciate you coming over. Go listen to Rob's podcast. It's a great fun deep dive and probably a little less complaining because people come on talking about records they actually like but <laughs> so maybe you know who knows but go check it out we thank you rob we'd love to have you back sometime for now for 1001 album complaints signing off i've been rob i'm marty i've been tom boosh 